0: completely unbalanced come on now brian that's pretty awful oh my god <laughs> he's unbalanced this guy is a lunatic these men lived in a much different time god we got some kooky people back in this time
1: it's not obvious that we are professionals You are not paying attention we know what we're doing
0: <laughs> but i'm serious
1: can we start already Hey, welcome back to Unbalanced Views of History. This is Brian. We are in part two of our Robert Matthews episode, and we're going to just go ahead and jump right in here. It's
0: 1826,
1: and the Matthews family has reunited in Albany. Margaret has good reason to hope maybe, just maybe, her fortunes might improve in this new city. Albany was uh, a city very much on the rise when they reunited there, when the family reunited um, Robert Fulton, who is so sort of famous for creating the first commercially successful steamboat company, and a lot of people associate him with the Mississippi River, but it was actually the, the Hudson River, which where he first saw steamboats like successfully operate. And again, once you have steamboats, you can go upriver easily. The whole reason a steamboat matters is because you don't need the current to tra- to, to drag you down and you don't have to like get mules dragging you against the current. Anyway, Albany grew pretty steadily after steamboats started running the river, but it was really, uh, they experienced an explosion in growth after uh, what was called DeWitt Clinton's uh, Big Ditch or Clinton's Folly. Uh, The Erie Canal opened in 1825. The Erie Canal connects Albany to Buffalo. Those are the two um, terminus points on the Erie Canal. Once you're in Buffalo, then you're on uh, Lake Erie and the Great Lakes beyond that, right? This is hard to imagine today that like one thing could have such a big impact, but uh, the Erie Canal is maybe the most important thing that happened, certainly in the first, you know, half uh, century of, of the 19th century to the United States. So it's, if, if I mean, maybe arguably railroads, but it's hard to say. I, I think the Erie Canal mm-hmm. has a bigger impact. The Erie Canal opens up the whole Northwest Territory, the Ohio Valley, you know, uh, what becomes Indiana, Illinois. Uh, Wisconsin, Michigan, all, all of that, you know, uh, Minnesota, all of that gets opened up because of the Erie Canal. You can start to bring in the agricultural products from, say, Ohio or, uh, Indiana. You can bring agricultural products from there to the coastal cities, right? Uh, freeing those coastal cities up to be, uh, more, to focus more and more on manufacturing, right? So it's all about the Great Lakes. I mean, for, for a long time, people realized that, um, the Great Lakes were kind of the key to opening up the country. They, uh-huh. You know, there was this idea that you would eventually be able to use the Great Lakes for shipping. Anyway, the Great Lakes are all connected, right? So this is again something we don't always think about, but like all of the Great Lakes are connected by by rivers. It's, so mm-hmm. so if you can navigate to any of them, you can navigate through all of them, except for there's one sort of really significant problem, right?
0: So they're massive.
1: Well, no, but I mean, but we're talking about the age of sail. So I mean, this is perfect. You put like huge ocean sailing vessels on the Great Lakes. And then, you know, you could, you could transfer goods from, from huge ship to, uh, to smaller boats to go the rivers between them. It's much easier and faster and cheaper than trying to transport goods by land. But there is a huge problem for people who might want to, uh, get, say, to the Atlantic via the Great Lakes. And that's between Lake Ontario and Lake Erie. And there's a big problem. You can't get from Lake Erie to Lake Ontario or vice versa. Mm-hmm. Do you know why? No. Well, the river between Ontario and Lake Ontario and Lake Erie is called the Niagara River, which as it turns out has a pretty famous feature that makes it hard right. to sail up. Yes, right? yes. <laughs> right? So yes. so this is <laughs> the problem, right? Like you, you get to the waterfall and you're like, oh uh, great. <laughs> like, or- you know, you send it over and hopefully, the mass, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so anyway, so yeah, so the Erie Canal cuts through New York State, effectively, effectively sort of cutting off that problem. I mean, you can, you can send goods from Green Bay, Wisconsin or, or Sheboygan or Duluth, Minnesota all the way to Buffalo by sale, which is, you know, the the fastest, most efficient way to ship things in the 19th century. Mm -hmm. Anyway, the Erie Canal cuts through New York State, right? Effectively connects New York City to places like Cleveland, Ohio, and Sandusky, Ohio, and uh, eventually to Chicago and Detroit, Milwaukee. uh, They'll build other canals to connect, like, the Finger Lakes and all the other Mm -hmm. tributaries into, like, a whole network in New York. Prior to the Erie Canal's completion, the Mississippi River and then, like, really expensive overland routes through the Appalachians were the only ways to transport goods from the interior to, you know, to the, to the East. I want to say coast, but when I say coast, I mean like the colonies, like the original colonies. Right. So it was it before the Erie Canal, it was cheaper to say ship goods from Cincinnati to New York by putting things on the Ohio (laughs) river, sending them from the Uh Ohio to the Mississippi river down to new Orleans and then sail Uh from new Orleans up to New York. It was cheaper to do that than it was to ship them from Cincinnati across the mountains to New York.
0: That's crazy.
1: Yeah. This
0: this is when FedEx got created. Yeah, of course. (laughs) um,
1: Delivery? What do you have here? Yeah, they they were fresh flowers, but, uh, you know. Well, actually, if I'm using Cincinnati as a model, you know, Cincinnati was known, uh, Eh. like, the 1830s used to be called Porkopolis.
0: Well, that city is a shithole, I'll tell you that, because I've spent many a week in that city, and I hate it. They have nothing to offer. Nothing. Nothing. They were...
1: They were known as Porkopolis because they were the, they were the, uh, like the center of, um, of hog butchering in, yes. in America. And, uh, and, and it was only, for, it was only for about 20 or 30 years or so before Chicago took over. Once the railroads, once the railroads got involved, but here's if the you, thing. You're saying how awful Cincinnati is. Uh-huh. I just want you to think about like half the year, you know, for half the year, there's no like, hog butchering because it has to be a certain temperature right in order to keep like it has to be cold for the hogs to to be able to keep them without spoiling so so for half the year though cincinnati would just run red with the blood of like a million hogs i mean think about the smell of just like just pork every i mean it would be overwhelming for half the year so you're saying it's you're saying it's just like uh you know whatever you said what you said it's uh it's terrible whatever but i'm like i don't know it couldn't possibly be any worse than it used to be. <laughs>
0: yeah, well, of course, back then I think everything was worse than it than it than it is. And uh, if you're ever stuck in Cincy, you should just leave and go to Louisville. I think that's
1: yeah, that makes that's sense. your
0: best bet. What's yeah. your best bet?
1: <sighs> yep, get yourself a get yourself a baseball bat. Yeah. So super expensive to ship things by teamsters um, across yes. the Appalachians, and and you know for a lot of things uh, spoilage was a, a big problem, right? Uh-huh. So you know only certain things could even would even be worth shipping that way. The Erie Canal, and this this is you're going to like this. The Erie Canal cut the cost of transportation by ninety five percent. Wow. Yeah, no small no small feat. Um, the initial loan was fully paid by eighteen thirty seven, so it took twelve years to pay back the full loan, and the tolls that were collected in the first year alone were more than the total construction costs. So just in the first year, they took in more money than it cost to build.
0: I mean, obviously they had
1: expenses and had to pay, but like, yeah, it took eight years, sorry, it took eight years to build the the whole thing. By 1828, so just three years after it opened, the import duties that were collected in New York custom houses, right? Mm -hmm. Fully funded the entire federal government, except for the interest that was paid on national debt. (laughs) <laughs> so so just the duties collected in new york paid for the entire federal government other than interest that's, that's the only amazing. thing amazing. That is so, amazing yeah i mean the erie canal was also you know important it served as the last leg on the underground railroad runaway slaves self-emancipated people they get to buffalo near the u.s canadian uh, canada border and then they could get uh-huh. across, take the erie you know they would take the erie canal across to buffalo and then get across lake erie over the canadian border and freedom um, yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. it didn't. You, you weren't safe if you were still in the United States. That's right. When uh, when Robert Matthews arrived in Albany, it was a bustling mix of civic minded improvers. Right. Uh, these, oh, we're going to talk more about that. And a kind of rough and tumble working class. It's the seat of a new breed of Democratic politician uh, led by former or future president Martin Van Buren, whose faction was known as the Albany Regency. Actually, yeah, the Albany Regency, along with Southern planners, would be the ones who elevate Andrew Jackson to the presidency in 1828. And they mainly create the image, a public image of Jackson as a kind of common man, despite the fact that he's one of the wealthiest men in the nation. So the Matthews lived in a working class neighborhood, no surprise, but they attended uh, what was the North Dutch Church. The North Dutch Church was a, a place that was known for kind of middle class respectability in Albany. Preachers adopted these new middle class sort of of uh, values and sensibility in their preaching. So gone were the fire and brimstone Jeremiah ads of Koila. Uh, sermons were aimed at wealthier congregants and they kind of encouraged them to uplift the, the less fortunate, right? That was more mm-hmm. the, the focus, was about the idea of uplift, helping others. Mm-hmm. Sure. So uh, the one of the preachers of John, uh, North Dutch was a guy named John Lud- Ludlow, who, uh, who once sort of encouraged people, quote, men could not be judged by his current external situation nor could a person claim true Christianity if they didn't help their fellow creatures. So, you know, this is very different than the kind of Calvinism that that Robert would have grown up with. You know, it's a softer, kinder God.
0: I think God may have froze you here. Okay.
1: So this, uh, this message of, of, of God as a God of love lifts Robert Matthews' burden, and he vows that he's going to be a better father and a better husband, and that he's going to lead people to Christ through his work, his work with a temperance organization. Mm-hmm. And that kind of holds out for a time. Anyway, like he sticks to his vow for a little bit. Uh, it, he goes along pretty good until tragedy again strikes the family. And then Robert would immediately abandon all those promises. So he's a jerk. Uh, He's awful. But he's also kind of, you know, like he's had some things go wrong that he had no, that weren't his fault. That's for sure. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so what happens this time is his entire family uh, contracts smallpox.
0: Oh, that's no good.
1: Yeah. And their youngest son, who is a a one-year-old boy, he suffers a, a, just a horrific agonizing death. And yeah, I mean, I don't know what you know about smallpox, but um, like you get sores all over your body and- your skin just sort of sloughs off and leaves you with like exposed, you know, like when a blister pops mm-hmm. and it's real, real sore underneath. Sure. That, that's your whole body. Your whole oh body is God. that. And so you can't, and, and when you lay, when you're laying down, if you like move on the bed, your skin sure. will just peel on off on the, so you stink because of course it's just all pus and, and infection and every movement is, is just agonizing pain oh god you know, so, so i mean everything i mean so you can, can't even imagine a one-year-old among the worst ways that, that i think you could die smallpox is, is unbelievable a, a pretty horrific death so at first robert sort of is surprising he is uh expresses his profound gratitude for margaret because he he saw her the way she cared for this boy as as being incredibly selfless and just loving and he told her he just was really impressed with her that you know that she could like He's going to keep her. But yeah, well, but just that she could be so strong and to do it yeah. like without, with I mean, because they, they all have smallpox. So like she's taking care of him while she's dealing with the same thing herself, right? But then shortly after he tells her how great she is, you know, he basically snaps like he never has before. Margaret explained, quote, I well recollect the night he brought home the rawhide. The usual punishment was five or six strokes. I often told him he would kill me but he said he didn't care. The gallows had no terrors for him. Robert routinely screamed that uh, Margaret always wanted some kind of worldly comfort. A new stove, new clothes, a better apartment.
0: He, he saw the credit card bill and pulled out that whip and said, you are always shopping, lady. That's, I
1: mean... <laughs> I mean, I don't want to laugh at, like, domestic abuse, I, but yeah. This is I mean, what it is
0: like. It's This is, you know. Anyway, This guy's an animal.
1: Yeah, he is. And he he would complain. He, like, started complaining that she held him back from his destined greatness, that, like, she was the reason that he wasn't doing fantastic, especially in his religious pursuits, right? like it couldn't, a
0: classic abuser.
1: It couldn't be that, like, he goes to, like, job sites and he's, like telling people as they're like drinking whiskey at lunch, he's like, no, you know, that's, you shouldn't be doing that. You're going to go to hell. And they're like, screw you, buddy. Like, I'm going to drink my whiskey. Mm -hmm. And and then he's like, "Ah, Margaret, you know, (laughs) like, how dare she? Like, she's the reason. (laughs) Yeah. So, uh, so anyway, he claimed that she had been uh, possessed basically by a bad spirit and that it poisoned everyone around him because it seeped out of her into them. Uh, And so the whippings that he gave her were necessary to try and drive the evil spirits out. The thing is, Margaret, she's just too ashamed to really speak of these things to anybody. Anyway, in 1829, uh, this guy, Edward Norris Kirk, who's a a preacher, arrived Mm -hmm. in Albany. And he brought the first kind of stirrings of the revivals that had been inspired by this preacher named Charles Grandison Finney uh, into the area. Historians call this time and the, the revivals that Finney inspired, they call it the Second Great Awakening. Kirk uh, arrived at Second Presbyterian in Albany. He replaced uh, a guy named Reverend James Chester, who had left his uh, left his position to recover from an illness. But he died a year later. But um, Kirk was a um, graduate of the Prince Princeton Seminary and Princeton, along with Yale and Harvard, were the most conservative seminaries in the country. It was really shocking when when he took his post and like on his first day revealed that he was like uh, a full blown Finneyite revivalist. This, mm-hmm. like, launches a schism at Second Presbyterian. People are really upset about his preaching and all this stuff. This was a church that was attended by both Martin Van Buren and his biggest political rival, who was DeWitt Clinton. Phineites were particularly embarrassing to Van Buren and his Democrats. The Finneyites would, like, criticize the fact that they broke the Sabbath and would criticize their political compromises. Cultural battle lines basically split the moralistic Finneyite Whigs and the anti-evangelical Jacksonian Democrats, right? Kirk's powerful oratory uh, commands attention, demands action. Phineites believe the world could be purified through reform and that this would usher in the millennium. The millennium is this belief that, um, well, there's there's two different ways people have thought about it over the years. The millennium is, a, is supposed to be the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. There's this kind of premillennial or post-millennial uh, ideas, and, and I'm not going to get in too much into the weeds with this, but like there's a post-millennialism, which is really what's going on here, which was if we can get the world ready... Mm-hmm. then Christ would come and rule for a thousand years. But we have to get the world ready. And that mm-hmm. means we have to work to reform the sin in a, in the world. Like, in other words, this was something that we could do as people on earth. This is kind of radical stuff, right? Radical mm-hmm. idea. That, mm-hmm. again, uh, that human beings could somehow change sin, remove sin from the world. Change so then, the world. Yeah, but not just change the world, but literally to sort of make it ready for Christ to come back.
0: Right. This is okay. the same type of mindset in Coke, the commercials, you know, people, everyone coming together, the whole world. Coca-Cola yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure, sure, was, was sure. marketed not as a soda. Yeah. As as, a, right. As a thing to do when you came together as a comedy and the song, come together and change the world.
1: You should. With a Coke uh, and a
0: smile. Sure.
1: <laughs> um, anyway, for Van Buren and and his sort of faction, Kirk was a problem. So Van Buren recruited Benjamin Butler to correct <laughs> Kirk's errand ways. Butler was a, an Albany Regency fixer. He was a church trustee and was a future attorney general of the United States. And he invited Kirk to come into his law office. So Butler and the other trustees from the church confronted Kirk about his unorthodox sermons. They want to try and get him in line. Instead of responding, though, Kirk doesn't respond to any of the charges and is like, he asked one of the men to lead the group in prayer. Kirk would sort of recall, quote, the appearance of these men was literally comical. What? Prayer in a lawyer's office at nine o'clock in the morning? If anyone should come in, it would seem very queer. Lawyering is the king's business, but it will not do to have him take any part in it. So, like, he says, okay, everybody, let's have a prayer. And they're like, what? What? Like, prayer in a lawyer's office at 9 a.m.? That's madness. So politics and business is profane, right? Like then it's corrupting. It's corrupt and corrupting. And that's fine. That's the deal you make, right? But so you can't really involve God in politics. That's what they really hate about Kirk is he's telling people to go out into the world. And by the world, he means go out into politics and go out into into the business world and save souls from those positions. And these people are like, you can't bring God into corrupt spaces. That's like, that doesn't make sense. And also would sort of make our lives more difficult. So he does this. And the the eventually what happens is the men will like, they hang up a curtain all around so that none of the office workers could see them pray in the office. And then the next day, they fire Kirk from his position as the minister. Excellent. Done. Like, so <laughs> buddy. Um, but he did have some followers. He had a few gentlemen and about 40 women. Uh, John Ludlow over at uh, Robert Matthews Church allowed Kirk to hold services at the North Dutch church church until he figured out what he was doing. He eventually splits completely and starts Albany's fourth Presbyterian church. Kirk, uh, very much like this Phineite revival guy that, uh, that was spreading through western and central New York, which was called the Burned Over District. So Kirk would thunder his message that salvation was a choice, not predestined. Calvinism had turned men into machines that paralyzed their obligation to work for a better world. Evil was not the inevitable outcome of men's depravity, he said, but instead saying that sin could be eliminated if people chose to live righteously and had heartfelt conversions. Perhaps the most striking thing of uh, uh, among Phinehasian evangeli- uh, evangelicals was the the central role that women played in this movement. So these new evangelicals rejected the the sort of rigid patriarchal order of society, and instead saw that women's were women were like the guardians of morality. Um, they were supposed to be the uplifting moral force of family and community, the the moral force of home kirk said quote the hope of human society and the hopes of the church of god are to be found in the character in the views and in the conduct of mothers the worldly men had held the church in check for too long and women also kind of drove conversion in this new movement at the the height of the albany revival two-thirds of new members were all women so pretty surprising that the patriarchal wife-beaming robert matthews then decided to apply for membership in Kirk's new congregation, right? Because this feels very much like this would not be a message he would listen to. But Matthews was really impressed with Kirk's moral bravery and his passionate calls for reform. He saw in Kirk a guy who demonstrated genuine courage in both his deeds and his words, right? This was a man who challenged the most powerful men in Albany, and really some of the most powerful men in the country, men who had been successful Mm -hmm. where Matthews had repeatedly failed, and he stood up for what he believed in. So what isn't clear is whether or not Kirk's message ever really got through to Robert, uh, even though Robert would attend Kirk's all-day services. Robert- no,
0: no thanks. <laughs> yeah, no thanks. That would kill the congregation right there.
1: Uh, anyway, okay. Yeah, no. That the all-day service is—you uh, can count me out. So, OK, Robert sort of returned to work. He regains like the former evangelicalism that he used to have. And so he goes back to work. And he starts berating his coworkers for swearing, for drinking and for whatever other perceived sins. Um, mm-hmm. The results end up being the same. Right. Unfortunately, he's ridiculed. He's humiliated before he loses job after job because no one wants to work with him. And of course, then he's his an old, ass. Yeah, because he's an ass. And so his old moods return, and Margaret then has to be like constantly on guard to watch her tongue lest uh, Robert grab the raw You can imagine home life, <laughs> home, life, home life ain't great. No, no. So it doesn't take long before Robert decides to stop working altogether and focus on uh, evangelism full time. Family meals, not surprising. He's making
0: better money, probably, too.
1: <laughs> he would be today. <laughs> Um, he was not then, uh, basically no money is coming in and family meals become sort of increasingly meager. Yeah. But he presides over family prayers. He like raises his hands and stands to pray. Bowing when you prayed was sort of custom. You would sort of bow your head in prayer, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and he would shout these like increasingly weird prayers so he would occasionally even like break into uh just bouts of of crying weeping for the sins of his people so margaret would actually uh pretty frequently leave the house during family worship because she was just aghast at his behavior and she was terrified of offending him right so she had right. like two two good reasons to get out of the house
0: yeah she didn't want an ass she really, had really well, nothing to
1: do with yeah. this guy right, right, right. <laughs> so that's a crazy lunatic yeah this is why he's such he's a fun story okay uh, i mean yes he's a terrible person and like he's a lunatic yeah yes so the thing is he profoundly like misunderstood and frankly he just violated the essential sort of uh tenets of this new evangelical manhood like his refusal to work his self-glorification his domestic tyranny we're all like in blatant opposition to this new kind of uh, religiosity. So, in fact, the more Robert tried to prove his worth to the church, the more he really he sort of revealed how little he really understood, right? Right. So even when he formally applied to join the church, he couldn't help but, like, bring charges of wickedness against two of the most faithful congregants. So, like, dude, what are you doing? Like, what are you – it's almost like he just can't help himself, right? Mm-hmm. So uh Kirk actually uh worried b- that if they brought him in, we should bring a firebrand into our society, end quote, right? And that was sort of a trouble that nobody wanted. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess it's pretty predictable. They rejected his application for the church, but instead turned their attention to his long-suffering wife and children. And uh Kirk gave her like a cloak and like a bonnet. And he gave new suits for the boys so that they wouldn't be ashamed to be seen in church. Because, of course, you know, they have little because Robert has not been great. Margaret never joined the church, but she accepted the charity and she would attend services. After this latest humiliation, right, this humiliation of rejection, Robert again mended his ways and he lived kind of like the evangelicals wanted him to. He joined a young men's Bible society. He took a job making sashes for the Albany City Hall and he stopped. You know, trying to like convert people at work. He applied for membership at a at a Methodist at the Methodist church, but they knew his reputation, so they rejected him. But in a last ditch effort, he tried to attend one of Kirk's Sunday services. But like in the middle of his sermon, the preacher stopped the service completely and then like berated him for having the audacity to show his face in God's house. So like, so, that
0: didn't go well.
1: Yeah, yeah. So he's trying to do better, and like he comes into the church, and like and the preacher just like stops everything to be like. <laughs> How dare you show your face in God's house? Like you, you are like the worst person. Like get out. I mean, humiliates him in front of everybody, of course, right? He returned home humiliated, believing. And the, he, what he believed was he believed Kirk knew that he was a good man of God. But, and here's what he said, but quote, that a poor man like himself, lacking the loaves and fishes, could expect to be mistreated. So he like has decided that Kirk did all that just because he's poor. So after that, Matthews dedicated himself to reading his Bible and to this uh, specific commentary on the book of Revelation by Alexander Macleod. So he claims that he started having visions of great events that would soon take place, and he would tell anyone who would listen. Uh, he was rejected by the churches. So Robert Matthews began to invent his own religion. In mid-June 1830, he left work early uh, and returned home because his chisel fell out of his hands and it got stuck in his work. And to Robert, he he said this was a sign that his earthly labor was now complete. Like he no longer <laughs> had to work. Because he dropped <laughs> So he he dropped Not his chisel. How
0: convenient. Not convenient. <laughs> he, dropped, he dropped his
1: chisel, and this is clearly a sign from God that he never has to work again. <laughs> so I
0: love so, this guy.
1: <laughs> yeah. So he comes home, you know, he cleans up, he decides to attend a church service. He goes in as he's about to clean up, he's gonna shave, he stops. He has this sort of revelation. He puts oh, away God. his razor and then he goes to his wife and he says, I, I now realize God never wanted men to shave. And so we've been violating this rule, right? Mm-hmm. So that night, uh, Margaret begged him for some money to pay the grocery bill. He very calmly looks at her and he says, don't worry. Another way is about to open. Everyone will have plenty of food to eat then, which is not very comforting when like, you've got bills. This and guy. Like, don't worry. <laughs> gonna be fine so the next morning uh he goes to the mayor's office and he throws the door open and just shouts that god is about to just dissolve all the institutions of man so you know he's doing well this guy's doing well
0: this guy would have been locked up today
1: he then returned home and he had a limp when he was asked about it he said it was a cramp that was brought on when rich families refused to receive his blessing Then, (laughs) then, then he fell into a trance and he was pouring sweat and he had a vision of an angel of destruction flying into Albany, bringing a tremendous flood from the north and west that would sort of drown the whole city. He knew this was a vision of things to come. And he told Margaret that they could only escape the destruction if he baptized her in the Holy Spirit. He then locked the door and approached her with a deep bowl of water. Terrified because, like, dude locked the door. <laughs> That's right, not, right, right, right. Like, right. This, this could not possibly end well for her, right? But for the first time, she resisted it. You know, I think she realized this time he really was going to kill her. So, like, uh-huh. she's so what she does to resist him, she said she too had a vision, and in it, and in the dream, Charles Finney that he read a Bible verse to her over and over but she couldn't remember it. So then Finney gave her the Bible and told her not to accept the word of another. She had to read and understand God's word herself. Like, Mm -hmm. well, I had this vision myself that I am not allowed to accept anybody else's word for what God is saying. I have to understand it my own way. And so like this works. Robert, Robert is just like, he's like struck. He goes and he sort of sits down and she's able to leave, right? Like she figures out how to speak his crazy language so right. it, as it turns out Charles Finney was actually preaching in in Albany like that night so Matthews goes to see him preaching and he wants to confront him he's like I want to confront the man poisoning my wife's mind right so mm-hmm. but he arrived just after the service ended and he just launched into this rambling diatribe about uh, about the millennium right about the coming thousand year reign of Christ. But after a few minutes, they just doused all the candles. And so Matthews basically finished his sermon in the dark all alone. Uh. Now, he knew, like he knew that this flood was was imminent. He saw the, them putting out the candles as a sign as well. He thought his enemies had extinguished the light of the spirit just the way the flood would extinguish their lights. So he ran, I mean, really, he ran home. He rushed home to save his family. But Margaret... Not surprisingly, refused to go with him. He managed to convince his sons to sneak out and go with him, right? After they'd been gone 18 hours, Margaret actually became really concerned. She raised the alarm and her sort of evangelical friends get activated. Newspapers all around the area announced that an insane man and his three children had absconded. Ministers all over the area, uh, would describe him and his children, what they looked like before their sermon. It's a bolo, right? It's, it's a be on the lookout at every, at every church, (laughs) Right.
0: right?
1: On Sunday, June 20th, Matthews was found at his sister's house in Argyle. Uh He had been uh, arrested the day before for disrupting a church service. In later years, Matthews would describe, June 20th, the Declaration of Judgment. So June 20th marks the beginning of Matthews' kingdom.
0: Okay. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay.
1: The carpenters in Albany all took up a collection, basically, for the family. When Robert was released from jail two weeks later, uh, Margaret, she uh, she really has the Christian charity thing going on. And she welcomed him home. Very quickly, he demanded complete obedience from her and the children. And then, when she hesitated, he demanded that she leave the home. She <laughs> went to, um, So she leaves there, she goes to the mayor to figure out what kind of options she has available, which uh, are, are pretty few. So, yeah the mayor explains that divorce is impossible, uh, except in cases of adultery. And that's not the issue. Um, he sort of said, you know, being a bad husband is not a crime, right? Like, if right. it was, the jails would be full all the time. <laughs> oh. However, wife beating could land you in jail for 60 days. Like, So Margaret returned home. And uh, despite a few noisy fights, Robert never brandished the rawhide and beater. Now, you have to wonder. She was
0: probably tempted his age. I, I was just and gonna every say, you, you,
1: you have to assume. Like you know, she's just learned <laughs> but like the only way she can now now that said, she'd only be rid of him for 60 days. But you know, she you know, she has to be still be thinking like this is a guy who at times has been this like very loving, sweet guy. She's probably just hoping something will happen to bring him back around to his old self. You know what I mean? Like there's yep. there's gotta be something in that. Like, you know, she's seen him at his best. And so I mean, I and it's like you say, it's like classic abuser abused profile, right? Margaret ends up having to beg for food from friends and neighbors, and eventually she actually man- uh, manages to find some paying jobs for the boys. So you can imagine they're they're not like good jobs, right? right. They're, they're uh, I think, no. uh, yeah, but but still to bring in some money because Robert does very little work. He spends most of his time just thinking about his failed prophecy. Because of course, Albany did not end up uh, drowning in a flood. You know, so he was wrong. So he ends up thinking a lot about his failed prophecy. And of course, he thinks about his failed life. So in June of 1831, Robert, now with a long, full beard, uh, traveled to the burned-over district of Western New York, uh, the heart of the Finneyite evangelicalism. He leaves. He's got this burning mix of class resentment and a hatred of preachy Christian women for some reason. He... He had begun, though, to understand his true purpose. He knew, Uh he now knew that Uh men like Edward Kirk were demons spreading feminine chaos in the world. (laughs) Say again? This guy's a lunatic. He sounds a little bit like Jordan Peterson there with his uh, feminine chaos idea, but yeah. Um, (laughs) But, uh, you know, be feminine is chaos. So people like Edward Kirk are demons spreading feminine chaos in the world. They pulled women away from their rightful place subordinate to men by filling their heads with lies, convincing them that they had special powers. These emotional, (laughs) genteel, so-called Christian evangelicals and the poor female dupes who followed them would spread disorder until a messenger of the Lord confronted them and undid their damage. In the end, God would destroy these mock men Christians and put the women back in their place, end quote. Finally, he knew that he was transformed. He was no longer Robert Matthews, failed businessman and carpenter, abusive husband, and rejected Christian. He was Matthias, prophet of the God of the Jews. Now, the name Matthias has special significance for two reasons. First of all, uh, one that you brought. Matthias Matthias was the disciple who replaced Judas after his betrayal, right? But in Protestant history, there's another Matthias that might have actually been the inspiration for, for Robert Matthews. This guy's name was Jan Mathis, but this is translated in English as Matthias. He was a, a Dutch baker and a prophet in, during the German Reformation. In okay. the 1530s, Mathis traveled to the city of Münster with a disciple, a guy named John of Leiden. They galvanized, uh, Dutch immigrants and Protestant, like working class folks in the city of Munster, and they collectively elected a radical city council, you know, Dutch reform, uh, German and Dutch reformers. Mm-hmm. And Mathis renamed the community Mount Zion. Yeah. These Catholic and Lutheran princes around the area are infuriated by this election, right? It's not a great situation. So these, uh, <laughs> these princes ally, these Lutheran and Catholic princes ally together, and they mm-hmm. lay siege to the city. Mathis is killed pretty quickly, but John of Leyden he assumed control, and from 1534 to 1535, he dressed in these elaborate silks and velvets, and he ruled his apost- uh, apostolic kingdom with a strictly enforced subjugation of women to men. John of Leyden ruled with the authority of a prophet, and it was instant death for anyone to disobey him. Now, the siege ultimately succeeded. John of Leyden and his allies were tortured and then executed. He and Matthias become uh, heroes of the Reformation. Regardless of who inspired him, Matthias was happy to finally know his purpose, right? He planned to bring the holy word of the one true Lord, God the Father, to Rochester. Thus, he was going to announce his arrival as a prophet when he got there. Matthias left two, two weeks later, having accomplished none of his goals. Matthias sort of traveled around the New York countryside a bit, Before he returned home. But Margaret basically kicked him out if he wasn't going to work. So he left. Uh, He went to Washington, D.C. And then he went up the coast to Manhattan once again. So it's 1832. Manhattan was completely changed since uh, Robert Matthews had first gone in 1808. The population had tripled. Uh, It was a booming metropolis. As always is the case under capitalism, wealth for some meant extreme poverty for others. His old Henry Street neighborhood now abutted the wretched five-point slum and shocking mass poverty, a brand new thing, something that had not existed. Now, Matthias was himself also uh, probably as shocking to New Yorkers as New York was to him. (laughs) It is a wild, wild place, right? It is a wild place, (laughs) Sure. So anyway, you know, for Matthew, uh, for Matthias or for Matthews, his old house butts up against that. So like, you know, it's quite a shock. It used to be a respectable working class neighborhood. Men were all clean shaven, except for a few dandies who wore mustaches, right? So there uh, were, some of the, sure. the, the more sort of a cosmopolitan types would wear, yes, you know, yes. Yes. know, yes. But, but generally speaking, everyone was clean shaven. No one wore beards. No one.
0: <laughs> Matthias
1: wore an ashen, full and luxuriant beard. He walked with a limp <laughs> and his wild eyes peered from beneath a shock of long hair and a stern visage broken occasionally by rage at the slightest provocation. Like he looks like, I mean, he looks like a lunatic, right? Like he looks like he has to look like a lunatic to yeah. people in, in Manhattan. So Matthias would preach by day and he retired to a rooming house uh, near the battery at night. The battery is down on the the lower West side. Yes. The prophet. Uh, so this is great. The prophet accosted, uh, another, like one of the lodgers at his rooming house, one night, uh, he demanded that this guy guess guess how old Matthias was, which is such a weird mm-hmm. thing. And mm-hmm. the guy was like, I, "I have no idea, dude. Like, I, I don't know." And Matthias says, "He had roamed the earth more than eighteen hundred years." The lodger replied, "Quote: You are a remarkably good-looking fellow for your age." End quote. <laughs> So like it. Yeah. Well, I mean, like, what else do you say to this like bearded, wild-eyed lunatic? How old do you think I am? Like what a like just such a bizarre scene. Um, Matthias gets indignant, calls him a devil, and like stomps away. (laughs) Like, (laughs) how dare you? You know. Anyway, in another exchange, Matthias goes to um, Gilbert Vail's newspaper office, hoping that uh, Vail, who is an anti-evangelical freethinker, uh, would do some free print printing for Matthias. Vail recognized this uh, street preacher who stood on the corners and railed against, quote, the evils of clerics who visited women and tried to convert them in the absence of their husbands. But Vale kind of just thought he was, (laughs) saw him as a broken, deluded man, wandering the streets, predicting the end of the world, and declined. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But By spring of 1832, as Matthias stalked lower Manhattan, shouting messianic prophecies from Isaiah and insinuating they were about himself, many of New York's working men, like working men everywhere, found themselves broken by the system, like not unlike Matthias. They were, Mm -hmm. in effect, abandoned by their country and shunted aside by the market revolution in full swing. So we still live within the structures that were created by the market revolution. With every social construct, there's a kind of propaganda architecture that validates and kind of serves as a foundation for that construct. Always the case. Propaganda has a negative connotation because Mm -hmm. we don't really see the way that we are actively propagandized in our own system, right? We are all actively propagandized all the time in so many ways. Our own systems tend to be presented and reinforced as the kind of default human experience, right? Which makes sense, like that's how, that's how your society functions. You have to sort of buy into whatever is the norm in order for fun, for things to function. Uh, so anyway, so this is important. Propaganda though, is, it's really just information that promotes a specific point of view. Uh, let's take something we generally agree on that is silly now, just as a way to kind of talk about this. So like you and I can both agree that the divine right of Kings, that is the idea that royalty is handpicked by God to rule over their people is silly. It's absurd. Mm -hmm. Like we understand that, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. So there are some obvious logic problems with it. I mean, Mm -hmm. again, it's really easy to say. If God specifically handpicks the King of England and the King of France, both of whom claim God specifically picked them to be be King of their people, and they go to war, how do you explain God making such a terrible error? And so of course people rationalize this. They're like, ah, obviously God won out. No matter which side wins, you're like, ah, see, God was right. This was human intervention screwing things up. If you're not within that system, if you're like we aren't, we're outside of that system. It's very easy to look at that and just be like, no, you just like power. Like that's that's what this is. Like
0: mm-hmm.
1: you have to justify it. Otherwise, the whole architecture will crumble down. As soon as you start really thinking about it, it's all going to collapse, and that's ultimately what does happen. But so for centuries, though, people agreed, They generally accept this idea as not just true, but like obviously true. And Mm -hmm. mostly this is because they're thoroughly propagandized, right? Like the entire system reinforces this view and makes it seem as the default position. Every social structure was sort of set up to reinforce the truth of that specific ideology, this divine right of kings. It protects the kings from being, from revolt. To revolt against the king, you better be damn sure that people really think that God wants you to do that. Correct. Again, hard to do. So, okay. Right. So anyway, the propaganda of our kind of current capitalistic project is is not any different, right? The foundational claim is that market laws are natural laws and that capitalistic behavior, which a lot of times is called the greed principle, is human nature. So we accept these things uh, as sort of natural laws, but they're not just inherent in nature. They were specifically kind of formulated by Adam Smith and other 18th and 19th century theorists who weren't even really articulating a new system. They were actually retroactively justifying and explaining processes that they already saw underway. So they reframed it as natural law, this the process of separating economic life from the constraints that uh, had for centuries been placed on economic life by church, by state, by community values. So since we've been propagandized to kind of see these changes as you know, natural, in some ways, it's hard to see the market revolution as anything other than just a normal, natural process, let alone as an actual revolutionary change. The overwhelming evidence really shows that the process was and is a revolutionary thing. Many, if not most, Americans were injured, disappointed, or just shocked by the changes they experienced. And those changes ripple through society in positive and negative ways. The market revolution is basically part of the um, this capitalist project that removes people from their ability to subsist in the world without reliance on markets. It's the separation of most people from the means of production. Like up until this time, most people subsist by their own hands. And now all of a sudden you have to rely on markets for subsistence. Oh, does that make sense? Yeah. So this is a long-term and continuous process of growth and consolidation that really, it continues today. That's what we're talking about, right? The beginning of that process.
0: It's, it's, it's It reminds me of one of my favorite shows of all time on the, I believe it was the History Channel, The Men Who Created America. And okay. it shows like after the Civil War, basically how...
1: Sure, the robber barons of the of the late yep. 19th century. Yeah. So we've discussed some of the changes brought about by like canals and steamboats and how it dramatically reduces costs and speed. Uh, you can mm-hmm. you can actually start shipping things like meat uh, fast enough that it doesn't refrigerated right?
0: the refrigeration. Well, we don't have any of that is, yet. Yeah, that's you know, the game changer.
1: Well, that is the game changer. But even now you um, I mean, they're they're doing some pretty interesting things with lots of ice and all that. But you can still ship things now because you can do things so much faster at this time. You can ship meat and not worry about spoilage. But I want to yep. talk about how the early industrial revolution, uh, about the early industrial revolution, and its impact on workers. Workers like Robert Matthews, so that's why I'm talking about. So sure, sure, sure.
0: It he, had to be a, a nightmare. It had to be a complete, well, almost like slave labor, to be honest. Well, with you. It,
1: it, like everything else, it's a process.
0: So, because I could see the beginnings, there was no regulation, there was no rules, there was no, there was no employment office, there was no HR departments. There was, there was really just kind of willy nilly. You know, you had, you could get away with. Uh, slave labor is what they call it, but essentially I mean, the, that's probably. where I mean, I,
1: in in fairness, we're talking about a time where we still had literal slaves, so yeah, yeah. I mean, like, correct. sure,
0: sure. No, just, just like don't, don't, do. even don't,
1: please don't say what you're about just to say. Just
0: like they do today, they'd be looking for the cheapest labor that they can get. Sure, Right?
1: yes. So big picture, the Industrial <laughs> Revolution is a labor shift from farm to factory, right? But people yeah. don't live big picture, right? They live in the, the micro changes. They live in the, the birthing pans, right? Um, so let, I want to talk about a few of them. In New England, okay. uh, water-powered textile mills uh, first employed children and then women to mass-produce cloth made from slave-grown cotton. Master tailors bought cloth, turned it into finished goods, right? That's, you know, sort of what tailors do. Early on, though, uh, capitalist merchants started using what was called piecework. Women working at home would finish pieces of clothing, things like mm-hmm. they would cut sleeves or they would cut tail vents or they would sew buttonholes or sew yep. on buttons or whatever. Yep. So manufacturing was divided into parts, right? De-skilling the process. And that basically damages the livelihoods of, of the craftsmen themselves because it's far cheaper to hire less skilled labor to do to do mm-hmm. lower skilled piecework. Correct. Previously, master craftsmen had kind of lived and worked under the same roof. They hired apprentices and journeymen. They often lived and worked with the master's family. Journeymen would sort of become master craftsmen once they obviously mastered the craft, but also when they could open their own workshops, right? Usually, you know, they would sort of get married, they would open their own workshop. One of the ways that the system really works is that the artisans themselves are able to manage the labor supply in each industry, guaranteeing that there's not like an, uh, an overabundance of any particular craft, right? They take one apprentices and, and they know how many people they're training for the overall population, right? So you could sort of, I mean, I'm not saying it's a perfect process, but they had control over the labor supply. The skilling process allows this emerging capitalist class to hire less skilled workers at lower rates, which drives down costs by flooding the labor market with skilled workers whose skills are no longer necessary. So you have all these like skilled journeymen who suffer the most from all of this because They haven't quite established their own shops. And a lot of the master craftsmen could sort of start to open their own piecework and hiring people to do outwork, and stuff like that. Yes. This also has a profound social impact, right? Home workshops were replaced by centralized factories and shops. Working men left their homes to go to work, um, instead of working in their home factory and shop, right? I mean, their own workshop. So one thing that happens with this is that work and home become kind of separate spheres. Home became the moral bastion away from the profane world of work, money, and politics. Think about that within the context of our story, right? Previously in farms and and, and workshops, both parents were home, fathers had moral authority, and they were all like the family was all together. Now fathers have to leave the house and go into the corrupt and corrupting world. And women become the kind of moral bastions of, of the sacred space of the home, like a, a kind of port in the storm. So this also changes the relationship between this newly emerging merchant capitalist class and the working class. Where previously master and apprentice lived together under one roof, and journeymen would often marry the daughters of master craftsmen, and they'd have close relations in the family in general. Now they live separate lives in increasingly segregated neighborhoods, where neighborhoods are kind of become segregated by class and lower standards of, uh, and lower standards of living for workers would lead to increasingly segregated poverty. So merchant capitalists hired journeymen as low-wage workers because the de-skilling process and more retail merchants stopped hiring journeymen because they could buy finished goods from merchant capitalists for lower prices. It becomes cheaper to buy some like more, I don't want to say mass-produced because it's not, but like commercially produced shirt than to hire a journeyman tailor to produce the shirt. Correct. Because again, the labor cost is lower. So you see this whole process is basically taking workers, working class, and Mm -hmm. is driving down their uh, standard of living. It's driving down their wages, driving down their, their independence. And then this new middle class, right, these merchant capitalists, that's the middle class, they would then look at a place like Five Points and the social ills that have popped up there with rampant prostitution, gambling, alcohol abuse, like, and it's correlated domestic violence. And rather than recognizing their own role in creating the problems... They would instead sort of condescend to, like, reform the poor morals of the working classes. Do you know what I mean? Lots of workers will organize into trade unions to demand higher wages and maintain their standard of living. There's lots of, like, isolated labor unrest in different cities and towns because of these changes. But merchant capitalists begin forming their own, like, employer organizations. Think of, like, trade groups or chambers of commerce, right? Um, And those, like, collectively represent the interests of this new capitalist class. And they would charge the unions with uh, what they called unlawful conspiracy when these trade unions would agitate for better wages, conditions or whatever. Now, there were at least 17 uh, like unlawful conspiracy cases between 1806 and 1842 alone. I want to look really closely just like at the one of the most influential of these cases. Now, this was about Cordwainers and Cordwainers. Uh, we're among the first artisans to experience this kind of de-skilling piecework. Uh, cord that's, um, the, the name for shoemakers. Okay. Right? They're called cord because of the cordovan le- leather that they used. I thought anyway. they were
0: cobble, cobblestoners or something. Cobble, cobblers, cobblers are the
1: ones, cobblers, cobblers are, uh, cobblers can fix shoes cordwainers gotcha. make them from beginning to end. Cobblers- gotcha. uh, replace, They're the Nike of their day. They're the
0: Nike of their yeah, day. Yeah,
1: cobblers will like replace your soles, you know, replace your heels, that sort of thing. In Philadelphia, uh, cordwainers unionized actually in 1794. Uh, and in 1805, they go on strike. Employers had the leaders arrested for conspiracy. And in court, they argued that when the union succeeded in gaining higher wages, product costs increased, which hurt the community with higher prices. And they argued- would cause higher unemployment. So you see, that's the same argument today that every like every business says about like the problem with unions is they'll hurt the community with higher prices and higher unemployment. That's what they've always said. So here we go at the very beginning, that's the argument. Yeah. Plus they argued <laughs> that union workers harmed non-union workers by refusing to work with them, which then forced employees, to, employers to either fire non-union workers or risk a strike by the union. It's going to hurt the community by prices being too high. And this isn't fair to the non-union workers. They can't get a job. I mean, right? There's no argument that they, they could join the union anyway. <laughs> so in 18, I mean, you know, like that is the obvious solution to this problem. Right. So in 1806, the, the case of Commonwealth versus Pulis, eight union leaders were tried for conspiracy. And the court decided, quote, workers were transitory, irresponsible, and dangerous, end quote. They should then be subject to control by the courts. The court ruled that union strikes were an illegal conspiracy against the people. And the case uh, bankrupted the union and uh, fined all of the the workers involved a full week's wages. Severe backlash, of course, follows this ruling because it's pretty awful. And unions will persist, but it's, you know, it sort of sets the, the stage. Okay, one more case to show why workers like Robert Matthews were so resentful. In 1827, also in Philadelphia, and I'm sorry I'm taking these two cases for Philadelphia, the court records are just really good. And like mm-hmm. they, they capture two like moments in time that are like just perfect examples of, of what we're dealing with. <laughs> in today's terms, they're they're basically saying, like, if you go in straight, that's Rico, right? Like that's
0: right, illegal right.
1: conspiracy, right? Like, yeah. All right. So
0: yeah.
1: in 1827, also in Philadelphia, a union of journeymen tailors. That were working at a shop called Rob and Weinbrenner were paid a, a lower rate if they worked with lighter materials than with heavier materials. They wanted the same rate regardless because they're like, well, the work doesn't change. Like, just because we're working with lighter materials, it's also a bit of a problem because the lighter materials they're working with are things like silk. You know which is more expensive than like cotton so they're like well you know you're trying you're getting us less money when we work with you know the more valuable material like that's messed up you you get to charge more for silk than cotton and you're tra- you're paying us less for silk because it's lighter weight anyway so they they demand the, the same rate regardless of the weight of the material they work with so uh Rob and weinbrenner fire these these tailors in retaliation the fired workers pick at the shop they will like harass non-union workers trying to get them to to refuse to work there. Mm-hmm. But they also convinced other shops not to do business with Robin Weinbrenner, or they convinced and they and they convinced other shops not to hire strikebreakers, like these non-union workers. So this is these are pretty amazing modern tactics. You know what I mean? Like you create lists of strike breakers and you circulate them around so that people, you know, people who support the union don't have anything to do with the strike breakers. I mean, those are modern union tactics you know what i mean like mm-hmm. that's you know if you have a bunch of scabs like going in with no consequences like that's not that that hurts your cause so you want the scabs to feel as much pressure as possible because that will put more pressure on the the boss you know what I mean? mm-hmm. the bosses right so so again these are like perfectly legitimate reasonable modern tactics that we now recognize as legitimate modern tactics that yep. they were doing in 1827 which is remarkable again Occasional violence did occur between strikers and stabs, but like, but it's 1827. There's violence everywhere all the time for all kinds of reasons. Right, 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 right. Right. So when Robin Weinbrenner took him to court, the judge in in, in the jury instructions, the judge told the jury not to consider whether the workers had the right to demand higher wages. Instead, he told the jury they could only consider whether the strikers' actions were calculated to harm, quote, innocent third parties. So like, of course they were. That's the whole point. Like, you're trying to harm the innocent scabs. You're trying to harm, like, innocent other businesses to try and get them not to hire scabs or do business with the bad company. So, of course, the jury found them guilty because, because it's like that was the specific tactic. Like, that was the point. So the judge basically tells the jury, you're only allowed to consider whether or not they did the thing that they absolutely intentionally did. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, not whether or not it was justified. Not whether they had a right to ask for more money. No, you can only see, like, you can only consider whether they did the thing that they, they did specifically to try and improve their lives. <laughs> so after this, unions actually basically become illegal uh, until um, a case in 1842. So, like, it really breaks the back of labor. So this is 1827. So, like, everything was stacked against working people by 1827, Right and the people that were benefiting from the new system were people that didn't produce anything from a working class perspective the people who were benefiting from the system were the ones who were basically just like underpaying workers and then selling yeah. the fruit of their labor for profit while not producing anything themselves right so from right. the working class it's just like you're it's it's like black magic they're making money through right, black right. magic and so uh, it's really important to understand that this this is a world, this exploitative or exploitative middle class who is um, changing what, what it means to labor. They're also, right, keep in mind, this is the same middle class who is changing gender roles by driving men out of their homes and into shops. Right. Uh, and then they're condescending like reform impulses. They're trying to root out moral evils, ignoring that they themselves are immiserating workers and sort of driving them towards those moral evils. And then it's like, that's the very thing that's enriching them in the first place, right? Like workers being driven to alcoholism and prostitution and all of this stuff that grows out of the, like like that, that exists because this middle-class is making the money they're making, right? Right. I mean, it existed before, but it's exploding in sort of uh, growth and visibility because of this new system, all right? So this is the situation In, in New York and around the country on May 5th. 1832 the prophet Matthias arrived at a house on 4th street and he hoped to find another prophet named Elijah the Tishbite and Mike this is where we're going to leave it for today <laughs> the prophet Matthias arriving at a home on 4th street looking for a different prophet named Elijah the Tishbite so <laughs> what do you think buddy
0: uh, goodness this is amazing this is, uh, first of all, that guy's a lunatic. <laughs> um, it just As you read this, it's just every time I just keep thinking to myself, man, it must have sucked to be alive back then. Just people, just lunatics walking around. There was all kinds of lawlessness in business and in just the world itself.
1: Yeah, I mean, lawlessness is, a, I, I would, I would, um, I would debate the use of the term lawlessness just because, you know, they had laws. And, you know, uh, you know, just because I mean, things were, were different than the way we, we view them now. But like, you know, a lot of it's uh, really similar. I mean, yeah, we we've sort of toned down some of the violence and all that stuff. But like, I don't know. The violence then tended to be less deadly a lot of times, you know, it's just like street fighting and you know guys would blow off steam get get drunk and then sort of go for a little rough and tumble in the streets you know what i mean like you, know, you, be, you beat each other if you beat each other up in the uh in the alley rolling in the uh the, the, the pig shit and like you know and then you get up and you dust each other all you dust yourself off and you go back to work tomorrow you know what i mean like yeah yeah i don't know there's a part of me that's like well i don't know is that uh is that better or worse than like People get stressed out and then like kill like go to like Mandalay Bay and shoot fifty five people. You know what I mean? Like, is it better I than like going to Buffalo and and massacring ten people? You know what I mean? Like, yep. I don't know. I mean, I think um, th- like you're right. Like, there are, there's certainly you know modern comforts are nice, like no question about that. But uh, there's another part where it's like, well, I don't know. People seemed much more willing to like throw down when they were. Uh, when they felt like they'd been abused, you know what I mean. Like people were much more, much more likely to fight for their, for their rights, perceived or imagined, than today, where um, people have really been cowed into uh, just like you just take it and hope things get better later. You know what I mean. Like they're really, you know, I hear people all the time who like who talk about like, oh, this job's great. You know, I have an opportunity for like I'm able to do like thirty or forty hours of overtime every week and da da da. And it's like. Okay that's like that's great like I know that's that's an economic opportunity and that's great. I'm not talking about you. I mean I'm, like, I like
0: Right, know, I know. I know what you're like, saying like, though, but, it's, but, but it, the but whole also, notion that he's bragging that he can work an extra 30 hours mm-hmm. above and beyond.
1: <laughs> right. And you're like well, silly. well, like well, wouldn't shouldn't you just make what you need in 40? Like shouldn't that be the way it works? You know what I mean? Like, because yes. because it could. And, like it can work that way and, yes. and should work that way. It's like France today. If, I mean, if a, some business or politician or whatever were to announce tomorrow that, you know, the, the French were, were no longer going to get, you know, four months of vacation, they were only going to get three and a half months, Paris would burn to the ground. <laughs> I mean, like they, I mean, seriously, the worker, yeah. like the, the working class in, in France is just like, well, it's like, yeah. you, know, you know, the whole thing about like farmers, like bringing cow manure and just dumping it in front of like the place that they're angry with. Like well, that, yeah, this this, happen- this happens like all the time. We're like um where French farmers will like they'll have a problem in a, with a town council or they'll have a problem with a business or a politician, and they'll show up and they'll dump like three tons of cow manure like on the street in front of their house. That's how you protest for change, baby. You like show up and dump just a mountain of cow of cow shit on your local politician's front door. You're like <laughs> this this is you can expect more of this if you don't change things like that is how you get things done
0: and on that note i gotta I know, go i, I know you go. before he shits on the floor <laughs> okay. All right. All right. hey
1: save it you can use it for a protest yeah right